0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. And I'm Ariana Brocious. When's the last time you changed your mind about something important? Chances are it took time and involved conversations with people you trust.
1: In a democracy, meaningful change often requires adapting our views and building coalitions with people we don't entirely agree with. Some believe building rapport and finding common ground is the best way to achieve that. Others think activism and protests are key to raising awareness and driving change. But increasingly, we ignore the acts of listening and persuading, as each side is convinced the other is unreasonable and unmovable.
0: So we don't even want to talk to them. And some political movements focus more on the purity of their positions rather than trying to get more people to embrace them. That's the focus of my conversation with Anand Girardardis, a journalist, political analyst and author. His latest book, The Persuaders, at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy, explores how tactics of persuasion can help strengthen democracy and foster positive societal change.
2: In climate in particular, I think there's been this problem of movements that are better at being right than they are at being sticky.
1: We're replaying this episode that originally aired last October, because this discussion and Anand's ideas are still so resonant. He has strong and thought-provoking views on many topics, including why even mentioning the climate crisis can be so off-putting to many people, and the differences in how Republicans and Democrats try to get more people into their respective camps. But most
0: of us actually have more room to shift our positions than we commonly believe, and tapping into that is powerful.
2: There's a kind of B-side in people's hearts on virtually every issue, at least many of us, enough of us, to drastically change the course of this country.
0: One story from his book details an event early in the Trump presidency. Muslim-American activist Linda Sarsour was giving a talk at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and a group of men in pro-Trump clothing sat in the front row.
2: The Trump guys have found out about this progressive Muslim uh, Palestinian-American activists coming and they've showed up and they showed up and nothing happened. They didn't disrupt. They didn't protest. They didn't anything. And so afterwards she describes to me going up to them, you know, once the talk had ended and saying, what's up guys, I hear you were coming to kind of give me a hard time. And I think one of them said to her, I made a decision to give you a chance. And it goes on to talk about in that chapter times where she Linda Sarsour, has made decisions to give people a chance. And it's interesting you start that way, but I think at the heart of what I'm interested in, in in this book, The Persuaders, is the possibility of doing two things at once. Standing firmly and bravely in our convictions about what is right, not diluting them or watering them down for anyone's comfort, not diluting them or watering them down in the name of outreach, but standing bravely and clearly in convictions, such as that climate change is real and needs to be dealt with very urgently, or that Trumpism is a scourge on democracy and needs to be resisted and defeated, or that a society in which wealth is so concentrated on the top is not a humane society, not the society we actually think we are. Those are firm convictions that someone like Linda Sarsour or many of the other people I write about in the book hold. However, can we combine that kind of firm, feet-in-the-ground stance-taking with outreach, with giving people a chance, with making an effort to build a bigger we around our ideas? And I, I think there's a lot of people who are very good at outreach at the expense of conviction and standing for a damn thing. I think there's a lot of people who are good at provocation and, and getting people to talk about something or moving the Overton window without any mind to actually building a bigger we or coalition for their ideas. I was interested in these kinds of rare people, rare organizers in particular, who have found ways of doing both standing for something and reaching out.
0: And that incident also shows that there are Trump supporters who can do the same thing that that you you know they came to listen to Linda Sarsour, right? And they chose yeah, not I to mean, disrupt I her. Yeah, I mean I would honestly
2: say I think that inclination is probably less distributed on that side in an age of <laughs> in an age in which, you know, literal fascism has kind of started to overtake that side of the country as 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 the actual political philosophy and animating impulse. Um, and I think, look, this is not a book about how can we all get along better? How can we heal? It is a book about how do we save the country from very real threats, whether it's climate, internal fracturing, democratic decay, um, disgusting wealth inequality that has you know, made the American dream something that only exists outside of the United States, and so forth. But what I'm interested in is how do we grow the support for those ideas and not write people off preemptively as being unaddressable, uninterested, stuck in their ways, never gonna come around. How do we actually champion ideas like universal health care, or ideas like everyone voting and, and, and having those votes protected or ideas uh, close to your heart around how do we defend the planet from the threat of it being uninhabitable. How do we do those things in a way that is through joyful, magnanimous, fiery movements? Movements that don't just feel dour, right? And we should talk in in climate in particular, I think there's been this problem of movements that are better at being right than they are at being sticky, right? To me, and I'm an outsider of the climate world, but I will say the biggest problem with regard to climate on this topic of persuasion is the movement has been right on the facts, right on the warnings, right on the what needs to be done, right on the urgency, right on the shaming of politicians, right, 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 right. right. I think somewhere down the line, no one got the memo to make sure that we are building a movement that is more fun, more life-giving, more purpose-giving, more educative, more welcoming to be part of. So that even if you don't care about two degrees this or two degrees that, or you don't like the fact that they're trying to get rid of your car or whatever, you just want to be part of where that's going. You want to be part of that thing. And what I want with this book is for more of the righteous causes in this country and around the world to think about, are we reaching people? Are we connecting to people emotionally and psychologically? Are we building that bigger we, or are we just simply too complacent in the fact that our facts and our policies are correct?
0: Right. And you write about how some of those righteous movements can be, uh, exclusive and uh, arrogant whereas some of the what you consider less righteous are actually more welcoming and inclusive so talk about that dichotomy
2: if you think about the the far right in this country which is now the right if you think about what it wants on paper the kind of program it's committed to it is as exclusionary as kind of any major movement we've seen in our lifetime it is it is devoted to stripping women of their rights devoted to stripping people color of color of their rights, devoted to keeping more people out of the country, devoted to making life harder for those on the margins of power. But if you think, if you separate the program, the agenda, what it wants on paper, from its kind of effective approach to voters, its political tactic, the way it is read by a lot of people in a political arena, It reads as like, come as you are, everyone in, this is fun, let's do this thing. And if you look at the left, broadly speaking, by contrast, the program is the most inclusive program, I would argue, without exaggeration, I think, the most inclusive program offered in the history of humankind, right? I mean, we're... The, the the left is, is talking about every expression of humanity being welcome, being celebrated, being legally protected, right? But then if you look at the way the left reads to a lot of people, and I'm not saying this is its fault all the time. There's also big machinery trying to spin it this way. But I think it is also an internal problem. The left reads to many people as being a club that's hard to join. Mm-hmm. You got to know the right terms, you got to say the right things, you have to You have to kind of do your education on your own time and then come in, right? Again, some of this is ginned up. Some of this is unfair perception. But I I would say when I go out there and just talk to very lay voters, it is always surprising to me that they're somehow able to separate the program of the right from the fact that the right feels like kind of just a house party potluck where anybody can come in and come as you are. And the left, which is committed to this in some ways radical agenda of in, of human inclusion reads to people as a little bit of a closed circle and if that if we don't fix that we are we are handing the country to those who wish it very ill George Lakoff,
0: the UC Berkeley professor, would say that liberals go to school and they study human rights and issues and conservatives go to college and they study marketing and other things that are a little bit help them uh, sell their ideas. And you write about Linda Sarsour, who thinks that some on the left are, quote, too woke. And She doesn't appear to mean it the same way that people on the right mean. But what is she saying when she says some of her own people are too
2: woke? I think what she's talking about, and again, what what the right is saying when they talk about wokeness and they just kind of gin it up, is like they actually oppose the agenda of greater inclusion that is kind of signified by wokeness. is not saying that. Linda loves that agenda. Linda wants that agenda to happen as fast as possible, as do I. Her critique of her own side, her loving critique of her own side, is to say that that agenda of inclusion, of change, of men playing different roles, white people accounting for whiteness, uh, people learning to live with all kinds of identities that they were not socialized to be able to understand and live with when they were young. All of that change that we want people to go through. If we don't have a little bit of generosity and grace about the fact that what we're asking is kind of a lot, like transitions are a lot, change is a lot. Trying to get you know, 150 million men to not be the way that was totally acceptable to be a man 20 years ago. That is a massive social project that like no one ever talks about as a massive social project, but we are absolutely trying to do that. Watch a TV show from 20 years ago and look at the way all the men behave in that TV show, right? Many of those ways are just like not okay today and are widely agreed to be not okay. Yeah, like, Sein-
0: we, Seinfeld doesn't hold up these days. These very days. few things yeah.
2: do. And that's really amazing. Like we forget that, right? Like. We have achieved enormous changes in the way we relate to each other, the way people are supposed to behave to allow other people dignity and space and not to feel crappy about themselves all the time. We have uncovered so much of what was people's experience of the world, women's experience, what women were going through in meetings all these years that was kind of suppressed. Now we know, and there's terms for it, and there's training around it, right? But I think what Linda is saying is if we expect people, now that we have defined the new standard, to be Perfectly conforming to it, fully down with it, having no problem with any of it, fluent in the terminology, and then come into our movement. It's going to be a small, damn movement. And I think what she's saying is the goal is righteous. That is the goal. And if you really want to serve that goal, you need to be bringing everybody in. And you need a funnel, therefore, right? This is what businesses call a funnel. Like you need people at the fat end of the funnel. And then as they move through your funnel, hopefully they'll start learning more of those terms. But like your movement should be the funnel. They should come into your movement because they like your movement. They like what you're saying. They like where you're going. And then you educate them in your movement, but they're going to say bad terms. They're going to, they're going to misgender someone in your movement. They're going to, you know, like mansplain a little bit, like that stuff's going to happen. Right. And how do you not allow that? How do you, how do you protect the other people in the room? And say, I'd rather this be happening in the movement and us talking about this than you being at home watching Fox News and getting mad in your Barca lounger about, you know, dead naming.
0: I think that happens in in climate a lot, where if you're not vegan and solar, uh, you're, you're kind of looked down upon. There's this sort of you know purity test in climate world, like that sort of judges people about their greenness, and that can. People can sense that and it can be off-putting.
2: It's such a a good example because it gets to this confusion that I think a lot of the persuaders that I write about in the book were so smart about. Alicia Garza, one of the leaders of Black Lives Matter, talks about this. She says, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but she she told me, I I think sometimes in our movements, we feel like if there's a lot of non-radical people in our radical spaces. There's something wrong with our radical spaces. Our radical spaces is failing. And she was kind of like, what I'm here to say is, if there's non-radical people in your radical space, that's when your movement is succeeding. You're growing and recruiting. Correct. And you're you're now reaching people who don't share all the ideals, but they still want to be in there anyway. So if you got meat eaters in your climate movement, that means your movement is now reaching people who don't share all your convictions, who don't share everything, but they still like something about what you're saying. You probably even alienated them sometimes with some of your vegan stuff, but they're still there. Why are they there? That's interesting. Why are they showing up? You've created something in them that they still want to be there in spite of the barrier. Hallelujah. Congratulations. Now you got a movement.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation with Anand Girardardis, author of The Persuaders, Coming up, how Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez approached her relationship with what she sees as a problematic media landscape.
2: She said, I identify as a woman of color who does not assume that any systems were built for my success. And so I have to find the cracks and exploit the pockets within them.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. Let's get back to my conversation with journalist and political analyst Anand Gerdardas. Before the break, we mentioned Alicia Garza, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter. I asked Anand to reflect on a quote from her in his book, in which she says, the right deeply understands people. The left gets hung up on facts and figures in trying to change people's minds.
2: Alicia's quote there is so powerful and simple, which is that I think there's broadly two approaches in politics you see right now along the lines of what she's describing. What I think predominates on the left is you start with the wares that you're trying to sell. You got a couple of semis full of wares that you're trying to sell. I'm trying to sell you climate legislation. I'm trying to sell you democracy legislation. I'm trying to sell you advanced manufacturing legislation. I'm trying to sell you infrastructure legislation. And you, the voter, may be standing over there being like, I'm really concerned about rising prices. I feel my neighborhood is unsafe. And I feel like the broad approach of the left is like, no, 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 no. You're overblowing this inflation. It's this, this fine. It's just the war in Ukraine. Like you're overblowing the inflation. This crime thing is not real. The stats, if you actually run the regression another way, it's not actually more unsafe. What you're feeling is not real, <laughs> right? And people are like, I don't know. I just I, t- I saw two people got shot outside my street. I kind of don't like that. It's like no 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 no. If you actually compare it year on year, adjusted for population growth, it's you're you're totally safe.
0: We've got white papers that say
2: So many white papers, <laughs> and like you know inflation. Like my family can't afford anything anymore. Yeah, but like it's Putin. It's like Putin did that. You know you know. <laughs> and then by the way, uh, we got these trucks delivering some wares. Would you like to reorganize the entire economy to fight climate change? Like. I'm really concerned about like inflation and crime. Like climate is so important. Like that's the actually the issue that matters right now. And you know, uh, what about uh what about uh, infrastructure? I'd love to build some infrastructure. Like, yeah, I'm just I'm like I can't afford my house. Like, yeah, but we need infrastructure, you know? And 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 it's not that these policies are not the right policies, because as you know, they actually do address a lot of these issues and they do save you money in different ways and they do create jobs that will help you afford your house, right? But our, I just feel like very broadly speaking, the posture of the left is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you feel that stuff's important. But let me explain to you why, in fact, this other stuff is more important or is like, is like primary, like if you don't care about stuff we care about, then the stuff you're worried about like won't happen. That's often the argument. Okay, now pivot to the right. The right starts with. What's going on with you? What's happening with you, Greg? What are you anxious about? What are you afraid about? What have you noticed in your town recently that made you go, huh? That's new. What did your kids come home and say to you about what they learned in school that made you feel a little bit destabilized because you didn't learn that thing in school? And that seems maybe a little weird, what they learned or off-putting. What trainings have you been going to at work, Greg, that made you feel like, Oh, I don't know, I feel kind of awkward in those trainings, or I feel attacked in those trainings. The right is starting with you.
0: Relationship.
2: It is starting in it like, if it was like a tech company, it's like this is like user research, right? Like tech companies literally employ people to sit next to people using their computer and like watch what they do, what what's going on with them, right? So the right starts from a, what's going on with the users? What do you think about? What are you fearing? Instead of just trying to sell you these things, they're kind of trying to sell you them based on analysis of who you are. Oh, Greg, you're you notice there's more Spanish speaking cashers at the Walgreens in your small town in Arizona. That's so interesting, Greg. Uh, well, you know, there's this southern invasion that's happening. There's aliens, uh, coyotes. Like, can we interest you in that issue? Right. Because of what you're afraid of or you're going to these trainings and you're like, why am I suddenly going to trainings because I'm white or whatever. And like, we're going to explain to you CRT and Kimberly Crenshaw and this whole nefarious agenda funded by George Soros to brainwash. you, Right. But the right is starting with your affective experience of the world. The things roiling you, the things making you feel ill at ease, confusing, discombobulating. And it is, in some ways, respectfully centering you and those anxieties and sublimating its agenda as living in service of your anxieties. Right? Of course, the agenda is totally bogus and is entirely designed to like help billionaires become richer and spread more hatred. But in the political tactics of it all, There is a, let's start with you. And I I think when we do not do that on the left, we get to a place where we're almost condescending to voters about what they should be caring about instead of saying, who are you? What are you afraid of? And how how can I serve that? And so something like climate is such a prime example because it's the difficulty of climate for most people who are not, who do not experience it as a day to day issue right now? Maybe they should, but most voters who are not, it is not polling at one, two, or three. Right. I think there is a basic problem of saying it should be polling at one, two, or three. Right. Why are you not caring about this? Don't you get what's out wrong with it? Yeah. Right. Right. As opposed to like, what do you love? You love your kids? You think about legacy? You love things being affordable, what do you love? And having the agenda serve a realistic understanding of who people are. And I think there's some very smart people who I see thinking about that. I think Varshini Prakash at Sunrise is has really done some honest reflection around where the movement's fallen short in the past. And you know Ayana uh, Johnson, um, I think has done a lot of interesting thinking about that. But I, to me, that feels like a very exciting Uh, direction in the conversation of climate and, and persuasion.
0: Chloe Maxman is a young woman who is progressive, who won in a rural part of Maine. She wrote Dirt Road Revival, and she went around and knocked on porches and talked to people and listened. They didn't bring up climate. They brought up other things, and she was able to get them around to climate. But she listened, and she says that change in rural America happens at the speed of relationship, something that the right seems to understand better in the persuaders alexandra acacia cortez discusses how she and bernie sanders saw and used the media differently she says that climate change is a story that the media couldn't figure out how to sell so to speak and that's part of the reason why she chose to elevate it with the green new deal and and use her spotlight to start her conversation tell us about her and her climate story as you tell it in the persuaders
2: yeah it- you know, I mean, she is at the at the heart of this book. I think fully one-third of this book is uh, the kind of story of her arrival on the national and world scene, the first couple of years of her life and her kind of education as a as an organizer and activist and and politician now. And with regard to climate specifically, she made a very fascinating distinction to me between kind of her approach and Bernie Sanders as as you say. And broadly speaking, I would say, and I had covered Bernie separately and wrote a Time Magazine cover about Bernie some years earlier. Bernie's approach to the media was, I think, this is a corrupt system that will never give me a fair deal. They're sensational, they're corporate, this and that. And so Bernie just kind of had a, like, avoid, void, you know, as much as possible. When I was on a media tour, um i was probably as sympathetic a kind of reporter as you'd get writing a time cover of him you know and still it was like impossible to get the interview time that i'd been promised and it was just like hmm. he would not ever come say hi to the reporter and just like this total it's like dude you literally have a bus behind you of the entire national media like you can't come in and fake it for five minutes come in and tell it, jo- like even if it hurts every bone in your body, right? It would just benefit you and it would benefit the ideas he's, to like, just come do the five minutes of the thing, right? Send socially, your wife. In.
0: Yeah, he's socially awkward. Yeah, you talk to his wife a fair amount, it seems.
2: <laughs> if she, they should have sent her in. she's fantastic. Great communicator and great advocate for him. Um, I really like her. He just couldn't do it, right? At some level, he thinks that is a system that I, I can never, he's almost running against it, right? And he would often say, no one in the mainstream media is talking about inequality. It was not true. A whole bunch of people were talking about inequality in the mainstream media. But he just, in his mind, it was just like, that's the dark side. Now, from a democratic socialist point of view, from a kind of ideological point of view, I think AOC has a similar, you know, general view that the media is problematic. Uh, not gonna give some of these ideas a fair shake, is gonna marginalize you know, some of these people power ideas, uh, is corporate owned, is sensational, is short-termist. She said as much to me. However, she said, I identify as a woman of color who does not assume that any systems were built for my success. And so I have to find the cracks and exploit the pockets within them. And so that was a very interesting contrast where Bernie's attitude was like media corrupt. Therefore, I'm not doing the media. I'm not engaging with the media as much as I can, and hers was like the media is corrupt and sensational and short termist. So I'm gonna hijack it, right? So I'm gonna I'm gonna make it do my thing. So what is media like? Oh, it likes celebrity. Okay, like I'll embrace the kind of painful journey of becoming the celebrity that she's kind of a reluctant avatar of. But I'll I'll do that, and then I will use the attention I can command to introduce something like a Green New Deal. Or I will protest in Nancy Pelosi's office, putting my celebrity to use. So there was a kind of assumption that, yeah, these systems may be messed up. But I think as a young woman of color in her 20s, she didn't necessarily feel the same luxury to stand, you know, below the mountain and yell at the mountain like the system is rigged. I think she, you know, started digging tunnels. And um, on climate, it was incredibly powerful and effective. I, I don't think there's an Inflation Reduction Act without a Green New Deal. Um, you know, people forget. I think every major presidential candidate on the Democratic side signed on to the Green New Deal, at least rhetorically, right? That's a big deal. This was a out-of-left-field new congresswoman who got all the major major presidential candidates to raise their hands and say they're for that incredibly thoroughgoing climate proposal. So there's an approach she had that is that still has very much about knowing that the system can be corrupt and still finding ways to exploit opportunities to persuade in a corrupt system.
0: Right. And to, to engage with people, yeah, that she uh, doesn't like. You write about persuasion and the Golden Gate of Retreat. How does that relate to AOC and Mitt Romney? There's a particular episode there where you say she offered him something that her peers didn't.
2: You know, I've, I first heard her talk about the Golden Gate of Retreat, probably in the spring of 2019, I believe it was, when she spoke at the South by Southwest conference in Texas. And she talked about a mentor of hers named Ernesto Nieto, who who I don't even know if she named him that night, but who had taught her this phrase, the golden gate of retreat. And the golden gate of retreat is actually a concept Ernesto Nieto, who was this like political activist and, and kind of Hispanic racial educator and many other things, uh, a concept he learned from one of his mentors, uh, who I think might've been a mayor in Texas or something like that. And the concept was, that when you are in a conflict, an argument with someone, and you ultimately win or are on the verge of winning, you have to give them a golden gate of retreat, a kind of face-saving way to back out and accept your, your victory. And if you don't, then they're kind of cornered and they may not grant you the victory or they may start undermining the victory as soon as it has been declared. And so, you know, that takes a lot of different, a lot of different forms. I think it doesn't come naturally to a lot of us. Um, You know, I often would feel, for example, in the Trump years when like certain Republicans would come around and be like, well, now I'm against the Republican Party. I was like, really? Like, And, you know, I think if you're playing a golden gate of retreat formula, you'd say, welcome. Great. Like.
0: Rather than saying, oh, too late, you should have done Correct. that six months ago. I don't know that go. I should put
2: you in leadership, which is a whole other discussion. Those people always jump to the front of the line of leadership and suddenly they're the, you know, but I think there's a thing about being welcoming. And a great, the practical example you asked about is she, there was a moment, I think, during the uh, George Floyd protests of summer of 2020 when Mitt Romney tweeted, Black Lives Matter. And Immediately, a lot of people are dunking on him. Well, what about your vote on this? Or what about this? Or what about the fact that your party always does this? Or what about, you know, and all of the whatabouts were kind of correct, frankly, like his substantive positions hadn't really changed. You know, his party is kind of on the wrong side of every issue with regard to Black Lives Mattering, so on and so forth. And I'm pretty sure AOC knows that as much as anybody, uh, But her orientation, her instinct in that moment, I think, trained with the Nieto training was to say, do a kind of quote tweet of Romney's tweet saying some years ago, even XYZ people wouldn't have said this. Now Mitt Romney's saying it. Progress is a process, right? And I write the book, and it's, she was. It's,
0: it's, it's normal. Yeah. It's nor, she also says it's normal to work through discomfort along the way. Like she's welcoming people on a process. Maybe Mitt Romney was, yeah, struggling with something. And I don't think
2: something. she is therefore endorsing Mitt Romney's ideas about racial justice or policing policy mm-hmm. or any of that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I think she's doing what I'm trying to, what I was trying to kind of understand in this book and frame for others is she's doing a thing where she's standing firmly and clearly and bravely in her convictions and in that moment reaching out that's that's an example of the fundamental dynamic i'm interested in can you do those two things can you stand firmly on your feet in the ground and reach out and that to me was a moment where she showed how you can do that
1: you're listening to a conversation about changing our minds this is climate one coming up the majority of americans accept human caused climate change does that translate into action
2: I mean, if the world might end and we're only at 57 percent support for doing something about that, we're in real trouble. And part of what I'm advocating for in the persuaders is actually being harder on ourselves rather than easier on ourselves.
1: That's up next when Climate One continues.
0: This is Climate One, I'm Greg Dalton. I'm talking with journalist and author, Anand Garadardas, about his book, The Persuaders. Persuasion often has a connotation of one person jawboning another over to their side. But several of the persuaders profiled in his book take time for self-reflection, which informs their approach to influencing others.
2: You know, the opposite of jawboning is listening. And one of the things that I heard from multiple subjects that i write about in the book was the importance of listening strategic strategic listening and you know given that i interviewed such disparate people cult deprogrammer activists organizers elected politicians racial educators so many others in this book i paid a lot of attention to what they all kind of tended to believe in common or do in common because it seems to me there were bigger meta lessons there despite their worlds being different there were some of these cross-cutting things and i think that kind of strategic listening and showing up in that spirit was, was, was one of them. And so whether it's deep canvassing, which is this kind of experiment of going door to door and talking people lovingly through their own cognitive dissonances around politics, or Alicia talking about coming up as an organizer in Oakland and talking like women in a black community through their own conflicting feelings about the police and so on and so forth, there was a real theme of... I think there's a lot of pressure in the culture now to just call people out as quickly as possible. You almost feel complicit if you don't. You feel like you're endorsing what they're saying if you don't quickly condemn. And what a lot of these persuaders that I write about did was thicken their skin a little bit to be able to listen to other people's bile. And again, you don't have to do this. This is work that you should do if you want to do this work, right? If you want to organize in these communities, if you want to canvas, it's no one's job. To go listen to anybody's bile. And I want to make that very clear. But if you are despairing for the country and you live in a place where you feel like there's some room there, there's a lot of power in that kind of strategic listening of saying, why do you feel that way about immigrants? I notice you have a lot of rage around them. Where does that come from? Right? Do you know any immigrants? Do you ever experience any immigrants? You know? Have you ever experienced feeling like you didn't belong? What was that like for you? This kind of stuff, right? And among a lot of the organizers and certainly in deep canvassing, there has been a kind of ever more refined practice of having these kind of difficult conversations in a moment of rising authoritarianism, rising fascism, and people having pretty remarkable results in surfacing things that are going on in people beneath. The simple outward policy stands. Steve DeLine, one of the leading LGBT organizers in the country, leads something called the New Conversation Initiative, did this kind of canvassing after Prop 8 in California in 2008, outlawed gay marriage, which had been legal for a few months that year, and then outlawed again. Devastating loss. Lost Los Angeles County, lost large parts of San Francisco. Just like a devastating loss. Like Our neighbors all hate us, and they didn't know. They didn't know. They didn't know that it was going to lose Los Angeles County. Right. We have work to do. That was the verdict. We have work to do. Our neighbors in LA, the friend, the friends at the grocery store do not think we are human. What do we do? And out of this grew this deep canvassing thing. And Steve Deline says, you know, what he's the biggest thing he has learned through years now of canvassing and moving minds on gay rights, moving minds on trans rights, moving minds on immigration. Biggest thing he's learned, or one of the biggest things he's learned is, as he puts it, most people are 60-40 on most things. And what that means is, if I ask you, Greg, your position on taxation or your position on this and that, you're going to give me, for the purposes of going on with the conversation, you're going to give me one answer. You're going to give me like your verdict. You're going to give me where you land on something, right? But the fact that you give me one thing, one thought, one answer, one place that you land, it doesn't mean that there's not an element of another contrary thought in you. It just means like there was a contest within all of us over everything we think. And at some point, one side of you on that issue beat the other side of you on that issue. And the thing you decide to present to the world is Greg's stance is the victor side.
0: Right it's- and you you talk you talk about uh- Deep racists who loved Barack Obama and voted for him, and hardcore Republicans who hate socialism and maybe embraced uh, Bernie Sanders. So there's a little more fluidity in us. I recently spoke with Nathaniel Stinette of the Environmental Voter Project, and he said, at least in his world of electoral mobilization, uh, it's all about turnout, not persuasion. He says, forget about persuasion. We're too polarized. People are locked in their views, at least in this short term. What do you say to that?
2: I think it's just not true. It's just empirically not true. I mean, a bunch of people who liked Donald Trump the first time did not vote for him the second time. And that is why he's not president today. I I, I don't want to overstate the obvious. But to say persuasion doesn't work is to insult the people on the ground who did extraordinary work to move people on that issue and the frankly the reporters who told the truth about Trump for 4 years in a way that separated several million people from him who liked him well enough the first time and didn't like the sh- you know 4 year sh- show that they were getting accounts of like people moved and my life looks different because of that right yeah, you, a
0: lot of your work is about democracy and whether it's elite-led change. And, you know, you, your previous work, Winners Take All, is very critical of elites. You believe it's immoral to be a billionaire. I'm curious what you think of Yvonne Charnard donating his ownership, his family ownership of Patagonia, valued at $3 billion into a trust requiring that $100 million in annual income be devoted to addressing climate change.
2: Yeah, I, it's interesting. I've read different reporting on some of the tax implications of it and whether like, whether there should be a little more complexity around whether there's any tax benefit that he's deriving from it. But I think overall, what is interesting about it and positive about it is that it normalizes the idea not of taking money and and then using it philanthropically to increase your power further it normalizes this notion not of running your own programs, which is what so many philanthropists do, but in fact, putting the money towards policy advocacy, right? So this is usually missing from the philanthropic world. Instead of they just like to do their own thing, and this is pushing for policy that would change the game for everybody, that would would change the rules for everybody. Broadly speaking, I... Prefer that kind of approach. Look, I think nobody should ever be able to amass that kind of fortune. We should have a tax code that makes that kind of hoarding impossible. That said, if if you're gonna have someone who has made that kind of money and has to give it away, I think giving it in a way where giving it away in a way where it would tend to chip away at the kind of privilege of a person like that, chip away at the privilege of his social class, erode a kind of unsustainable plutocracy instead of shore it up is, is better than the alternative
0: about fifty seven percent of Americans believe that climate change is happening and that it's caused by humans. Some say that's large enough percentage of the population to help uh, mitigate the effects of the climate crisis. Other believes we need to bring more people in as you're talking about. What do you think about the sort of the the broad landscape of how many Americans care about climate? You said it doesn't poll in the top, one, two, or three. Where are we in in climate as a relatable personal political concern?
2: I mean, if the world might end and we're only at 57% support for doing something about that, we're in real trouble. And part of what I'm advocating for in the persuaders is actually being harder on ourselves rather than easier on ourselves. I think we should look at that 57% and not blame the 43% alone, although I think they bear blame. Certainly blame the Murdochs and others who are, helping to spread false consciousness among that 43%. But I think we got to blame ourselves. That's a lot of people we haven't won over. And I kind of want to see those of us on the pro-democracy side, certainly the pro-fighting climate side, to actually be harder on ourselves and say, we're falling short here. We're falling short here. And so instead of saying it's annoying that that's not a top three issue, I think the way we often feel it's annoying that people are not getting it how do we build consciousness around that issue, you know? And so just some some thoughts. I think there's a way in which, we talked about already the kind of dourness problem, right? I think there's a way in which climate, fighting climate has often been framed as something that feels like homework or feels like eating your broccoli or spinach. It just feels, it feels heavy. It doesn't, you know, and I think- it's
0: complicated. It's complicated, it's depressing.
2: Correct. Yeah. And I think it's worth saying very clearly that there is no- intrinsic reason why that needs to be the dominant affect of fighting climate change. I think it's actually preposterous that that's the dominant thing. Is there a dour element to it? Is there a you can't have this anymore element? Sure. But as someone else, I, I think uh, Bill McKibben was saying the other day on Twitter, like fighting climate also means blimps. We're going to have blimps going all around. Helium blimps carrying you around. And he he, he wrote a piece about like, Where's the delight, where's the space for delight in the climate? Why, why aren't we telling people all the cool shit that they're gonna have when we finally save the earth, right? Why aren't we talking about the fact that we're finally gonna make black communities whole in a bunch of structural and infrastructural ways after 400 years of plunder? Climate is the only thing big enough to rewire enough things to deal with enough of that legacy. Why aren't we talking about how awesome transit is going to be all around the country? Why aren't we like hiring architects to invent incredible futuristic, sustainable homes and build them at scale for the masses and making it easier to build homes instead of having to you know beg and borrow and and steal from your local you know, zoning authority to, to build something clean and green in your home. Like, there's no reason, intrinsic reason that climate is like, you can't eat beef anymore. And you're like, uh, you know, and you're not going to be able to, like, you can't, you can't, you can't, there's no, that, that that's, it's very weird that we've allowed that to become the dominant framing.
0: Yeah. Stop. Don't. Bad. Yeah. It's all very the framing where the electric cars are great. Anyone who's driven an electric car knows that it's inherently better, faster, more enjoyable than an internal combustion car. As we as we wrap up here at the end, Anand, uh, I'm interested in you say that most people are failing as persuaders. What can people do to be better persuaders?
2: I think there's a whole bunch of things you can do. I think you can learn to listen better and more strategically. Again, not for kumbaya. But for actually achieving results in moving people, I think you can thicken your skin a little bit and grant people a little civic grace and recognize the difference between, as Loretta Ross, a veteran reproductive justice and racial justice advocate says, recognize the difference between people who are like not fully fluent with the new language of social justice, and people who want to kill you. Those are really different communities and being able to recognize the difference and having a little more patience. I think above all, the pro-democracy forces need to embrace a kind of human psychology and human emotion lens as the way to reach people. The climate movement needs to you know, stop trying to hawk a, a dour-sounding agenda, and actually start with where are people? Meet people where they are. Where are they on the emotional level? Where are they psycho- psychological level? How can we speak to them? And finally, whether this is folks listening worrying about their climate change-denying uncle or worrying about this at a more systemic scale, I think it's important to recognize that a very large number of voters, of citizens, of our relatives and friends are morally confused. They are, as Beyonce describes of herself in her new album, they're contradicted. Not everyone. There are absolutely militant, committed fascists in this country, and you can kiss them goodbye. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of diehard progressives. You're probably not going to convince them that climate change is not real. But there's a lot of people in the, between them who they're not actually according to so much of the research that I've seen, they're, they're not centrists, they're not in the middle, they're morally contradicted. They agree that the planet is beautiful, but they don't like pressure on small business to save the planet. They agree that black people have it harder in this country, but they don't like the government playing favorites on race and you know having race-conscious politics. Like, they just feel contradicted. The thing that separated the persuaders I wrote about in this book from the people who I'm, all of us, the rest of us who I'm writing this book for, is that I think the persuaders I wrote about get that people are contradicted and orient themselves toward building up that element in people that might compete with the other thing that is right now their outward stance. Your outward stance is against immigration. Your outward stance is let's do nothing on climate. But there's another part in you It may be your Christianity and your idea of God's creation of the earth. It may be your sense of the importance of freedom that actually starts to convince you that universal health care would actually free you from the moods of your boss and health insurance bureaucrats, right? There's a a kind of B-side in people's hearts on virtually every issue. The B-side is... Small in some cases, it's almost near as influential as the A-side in other cases. But we all kind of have a B-side for the things we think, at least many of us, enough of us to drastically change the course of this country. And the biggest thing I think you could take away from these persuaders I, I got to spend time with over the last few years is to recognize that view of other people as complicated, as complicated as you know yourself to be and then engage whether interpersonally in your family in politics uh, engage in that work of helping them make it make sense helping them make meaning and be there to walk with them uh, in the direction that you that you wish to go
0: yeah we're all complex more complex than uh, what shows up on social media feeds where that all that nuance and complexity is often Still, Anand Girardaradas is author of The Persuaders at the Front Lines of the Fight for Hearts, Minds, and Democracy. Thank you so much, Anand, for
2: sharing your insights. Thank you. I enjoyed this conversation so much.
0: Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be hard, difficult, exciting, sometimes awkward. And it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review if you're listening on Apple. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you will help them have their own deeper climate conversations.
1: Greg Dalton is our host and executive producer. Brad Marshland is senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Austin Cologne is producer and audio editor. Megan Basilia is production manager. Wency Shada is development manager. And Ben Testani is communications manager. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Ariana Brocious.